great to be recording another episode of Geopolitico. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, it's the year of Corona. The pandemic has been persisting and now at 50 million cases and almost 1.2 million deaths. Uh, we have some of the highest levels of cases uh, and death that we've had, uh, but we will get through it. Uh, ultimately, though, it's just been uh, another facet and feature of a truly upside down year in which we are heading now very shortly to an election on November 3rd uh, between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, which seems to be determining the fate of the world, if not the universe. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of other things going on, but it does seem this way. And uh, with uh, people around the world spending an average of two and a half hours a day on social media, I'm sure it is reverberating in each of our feeds consistently and constantly. Um, and it does seem that there is a zero-sum element. Uh, if you look at half of Democrats and Republicans, and a recent poll in Gallup basically thought the other side is immoral uh, when compared to other Americans. So you really do have a sense of division, a sense of maximalism at play. And globally, we're in a very important year. It's an apocalypse shift. Uh, Asia will be surpassing this year with the majority share of the world's economy. Uh, it hasn't happened in centuries. Uh, it was about 20% in the 1950s. So we really are at a historical turning point uh, domestically in the United States, internationally. Uh, and uh, it is going to be uh, an interesting election. Uh, but then I think an interesting decade, and we're setting ourselves up for really a period of time where there is going to be a lot uh, shifting. So today I'm going to cover a little bit around uh, this upcoming election to the best that I can, uh, and then explore a little bit around the media, the elite, uh, racial justice, uh, what the next 30 years uh, will look like compared to the last 30 years, and exploring a little bit around hope and uh, change. So stay with me and uh, let's uh, go for the ride. What is Trump? A disruptor, a destroyer, a distractor. You know, it's interesting when you talk about him, right? Because everybody is trying to put a label on him. He's kind of like a Rorschach test, you know, depending on what you're feeling or what you're thinking, he's that to you, which is probably why there's so much division around what or who Trump is. I mean, maybe he is evil incarnate, but for some people, he's definitely the savior. And you see that 13% of uh, his supporters, uh, his voters in 2016 actually supported Obama in the election before. So race be damned, uh, there was a group of people that saw him as the president that they wanted to have in office, white, black, or otherwise. Four in ten of the people who went to the polls in 2016 were looking to vote for change. So 2016 was a change election. Here was the agent 
of of chaotic change of of change to the extreme you know the tasmanian devil of change the orange tasmanian devil coming in whipping around turning everything up and he's there i mean maybe it could have been bernie maybe it was it should have been that burning up maybe could have been should have been would have been but it wasn't and and you had trump and so in in many senses trump represents and his movement now this rejection of the status quo the establishment the way things were going and what's different today versus 2016 and it's really important for people to get this is that it's no longer about trump trump opened an avenue where people feel that it was all the alt right and uh, others coming in like richard spencer let me tell you something richard spencer and that whole group milo and all they're gone i mean they're still around here and there but they're on the periphery if you want to understand what's going to remain after trump whether now or later it's this mega movement that by the way is a lot younger is a lot blacker has a lot of women is lgbt friendly and people may think that i'm trying to sugarcoat something i'm just telling you the facts if you look at the racial composition of supporters of democrats and republicans and trump and biden it's actually shrunk by 16 percentage points go look that up in the new york times in the last 4 years and i am sure that many of you listening who might be opponents and god bless you if you are of donald j trump and the president of the united states and the republican party but you know from your friends and your family that there's a whole lot of people who aren't white who are supporting him and it's important to understand that because trump will come and go but something is going to stay and the complexity of what trump has been is a complexity that's reflected in america in america that champions forgiveness and criminal justice reform while also celebrating punishment and execution for the central park 5 Why might Biden win? Why might Trump win? What does it mean? Recording this obviously before November 3rd and if you re- listen to it after it might seem obsolete. Uh I don't know when after is it could be November 10th or 17th, uh, god forbid. Uh hopefully it all works out in a very seamless way, uh but we may not know for a while who wins the election. But I'm recording this for posterity because I think there are two avenues and two paths. And even though one will bear out, uh both are equally possible. And it shows the nature of the American electorate. It is a close race closer than we think. It's not just about the polling. Obviously, you look at the polling and some polling is there 10%, 11%. uh you know and you can go to realclearpolitics.com you can see all the polling you have you know the hill polling 
you have the IBD polling, you have the Rasmussen polling, um, The Economist, Emerson, and you'll see that there is a range. Um, but the most recent polls, they're there, 3%, 4%, 7%, um, very much so still, though, in the Biden camp. And Biden is leading across every single poll in each swing state. And what is remarkable is underneath the polls. And that is how Biden has been peeling away at the base for Trump. And so that is in particular those aged 65 and over. And if you looked at the voting gap, the margin, there was a 7% margin in favor of Donald J. Trump in 2016 of over 65 voters. And today that swung to about 11% in Biden's direction. Even if you take into account polling, etc., he's obviously doing better among seniors. And there was always a better favorability for Biden with that population compared to Hillary. That's one of the reasons why he also won, by the way, in the primary, completely underestimated this group uh, that shows up, by the way, to vote uh, very consistently. So he's really doing well in that group. And Trump it's not doing well with regards to the coronavirus, uh, both objectively uh, you know, whatever you think, it's it's not objectively as good as it could have been. And uh, the people most affected by that are people over the age of 65. And so that's got to have an impact as well. And if Biden wins, that's why he's going to win the election. He's doing worse amongst blacks and Hispanics than Clinton did. So he's going to win because really of white women over 65. That That's why Biden would win. So everything that's going on, that's the reason. Now, so if you're a white woman over 65, you, you should feel pretty good right now. You, you are it. You are uh, deciding the future. Uh, if you're a not white woman over 65, uh, you can go out and uh, you know party this weekend. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, it's going to come down also to a few states. So yes, you have the demographics, but this isn't a popular vote. It is to an extent. Um, but you could have high turnout in California and that turns out the vote, but ultimately that's not what it's about. Uh, and so if you look at the electoral college, it's going to come down to a few states. Now in, uh, 2016, Donald J. Trump won with Michigan, won, won Wisconsin, won Pennsylvania, and then picked up obviously Ohio and Florida won the election. But it was those three states that really were not Republican states. He played in an area which were not seen as a base for the Republican Party. Now, what's interesting about this time around is that in order to win, Obama, uh, Trump needs to maintain those states that he had picked up. Ohio and Florida, which have traditionally been some type of swing state, as well as maintaining three Republican states, North Carolina, Georgia, in Arizona, and a congressional district in Maine and a congressional district in Nebraska. Now, what could happen? Okay, so what, what could unfold? So even though the polls are with Biden, the over 65 white women are with Biden, he still needs to win a few of these states in order to win the election. Now, last time, 
Trump, he had 306 electoral votes. So he can lose a few of the electoral votes. If he lost uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, it's about 26 electoral votes. He still has more than enough to win. He could also then lose Arizona and still be tied 269 for the election, which is its own kind of situation, which then actually puts into play the importance of the Nebraska uh, congressional district and the main congressional district. So you could have the election decided by one of those congressional districts if you have this mix of where Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin is in play. But if he loses Ohio or Florida, it's all over. But actually, if you look at the polling, he's doing very well in both. He has a strong base in both. He has Hispanic support in Florida, driven a lot by the Cuban-American community. So it's very unlikely he loses Florida. It's very unlikely he loses Ohio. And if you look at North Carolina and you look at Georgia, yes, there are polls showing some momentum. But ultimately, those are Republican states. So again, if, if Trump does lose those, it really means a blue wave of unprecedented proportion. So we got to think that North Carolina and Georgia are going to stay with President Trump. And so it really does come down to one state. If he has any shot of winning and for Biden to truly have a firewall, it's Pennsylvania. Now, Biden is born and, and spent part of his life in, in Pennsylvania. He talks about Scranton. Um, and I may be getting part of the timeline wrong there, but somebody can correct me. Be like, how fake you're wrong. Uh, but that's that's good. I welcome that. Um, and Pennsylvania is extremely competitive. And the focus of the Republican Party is turning out the vote. In some districts, they're trying to turn out the vote up to 90% of their base. And so a lot of turnout on Election Day uh, is going to make a huge difference on who wins this election. Uh, the early voting, the mail-in voting is going to trend Democrat. And so obviously we're going to have a very contentious time after November 3rd if the election is close, as people count ballots. And as you count the ballots that have been coming in by mail, they're going to be more Democratic. And there's going to be a lot of contestation if the Electoral College is shown in the favor of Trump on election night. And a lot of states that are governed by Democrats, when we talk about Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, are going to try to not certify the election to the very last moment. And so this is where things could get quote-unquote ugly. And we'll see what happens. And then obviously if it goes to the Supreme Court, you have a recently appointed Supreme Court justice who ostensibly tips the scales uh, when there is a deadlock, 4-4, Amy Barrett, and that could get contentious from the Democrat side because they'll say it's a Republican court. So we're going to see what happens. But there is a path to victory for both candidates still. And as I charted out, it comes down to a handful of states. Uh, and we're going to see what happens. So in the next 72 hours, there's going to be significant campaigning in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and definitely Pennsylvania as the critical state. And you'll see both candidates there. Now you'll also see some coming up from the flank. And that is where you're going to see Joe Biden potentially in Georgia, uh, potentially in North Carolina, but I think they see more prospects for Georgia, and Trump in Minnesota. So if there is a state that he believes 
uh, he could peel off from uh, the Republic, uh, the Democrats and from Biden, it would be Minnesota. Again, that's 10 electoral votes, so it's really interchangeable with Wisconsin. And then there's Nevada. Um, Nevada, in many ways, is similar to Iowa for the, the Democrats. So Iowa leans Republican and Nevada leans Democrat, and they both have six electoral votes. But it's likely that Nevada will stay Democratic and Iowa will stay Republican. But we'll see. Those are, those are two that are just, you know, a little bit on the periphery. Uh, so what does it mean? You know, why, why would they, each of these, these ones, what's the case? W what are people saying when they go into uh, their ballot envelope? I guess I would say the booth, but it's really the envelope more than it is the booth these days. What are they thinking when they vote for each candidate? From their own perspective. Because if you say it from your perspective, I mean, I can say it. I mean, why would they support Biden? Biden is a... Uh, uh, Biden is a, uh, an old, uh, senile, cognitively declining individual, part of the corrupt Obama administration with his son selling deals to China. And he represents the elite. Uh, and uh, we don't want that type of Democrat socialist selling out America. Well, I'm sure there's the Trump, you know, criticism of... Uh, of course, no one is going to vote for that racist unless they are themselves a racist and they hate women and simply just want to de deny the women the right to control their bodies. These people are simply interested in giving tax cuts to the wealthy and really sending the police to shoot uh, black people because of they're just racist and they can't handle the fact that there are more black and brown people in this country. So that's the, the take, right, from outside. But let's go inside out. What's the affirmative take? What is the theory by which voters who are leaning one way or the other will lean in to Trump and lean in to Biden? Well, let's do Biden because I think it's easier. Vice President Joe Biden is a known quantity. He's been around Washington. He's been around in the White House. And yes, that means he's part of the politics of the past. But we also know he knows what it takes. And we know who he is. He may not be perfect. But he's dependable. He's trustworthy. He's compassionate. We've seen him speak with political leaders, and we've seen him speak with people who are his constituents. And it's the same man. He's human, and he's humane. And what we've seen the last four years, we need that. We need somebody who will listen, somebody who will speak with compassion, somebody who will try to make a solution to our problems rather than throw more gas on the fire. And he's got a team. He's got other people in the party. And we're going to have a competent administration again. There's no better person to take on that role than Joe Biden. So that's the Biden case. Now, I know there's many people who don't believe that there's a Trump case. 
but let me tell you the Trump case, inside out. We have had, for decades, politicians who come into our districts and pay us lip service, Republican or Democrat. They take our votes, but they're taking Wall Street money, they're taking Hollywood money, and then they're creating policy that doesn't serve the interest of the very people who elected them. And it's very clear. When we're making trade deals, those jobs are leaving America. When the economy is growing, it's the billionaires who are getting wealthier. And all the while, our young men and women are being sent off to die in wars. It's been like that president after president, including Obama. Under Obama, we had more conflicts in the Middle East. Under Obama, we had the bailout of Wall Street. And actually, black wealth, household wealth, declined in the largest way in the last 50 years. So here's a guy who's not a politician, and yeah, he's not perfect, and he doesn't speak the right way. But he acts, and he does it for everybody. People like to say he's racist, but what about criminal justice reform? What about the unprecedented support for historically black colleges and universities? People say that he only cares about the wealthy, but what about the cut in drug prices? What about the fact that before the pandemic, there was income growth like we've never had before on wages, median wages, and unemployment levels that were the lowest, actually the lowest in American history? Why would I give up that for a group of people who are more interested in canceling everybody else than solving our problems? Now, the big specter amidst all of this is the pandemic. And I think the pandemic can swing you one way or the other because this election is not being held in March. And so there could be a group of people who support one candidate or the other because of how they feel about the pandemic. There's a lot to talk about the coronavirus, and I'll handle that very shortly. But a win for Trump or Biden, I think, comes down to two outcomes. Biden is a restoration of the system prior to Trump. He will stabilize the country. And a lot of people who are out of power will come back in power. In the long term, he doesn't solve many of what the ills that ail America and probably brings an interest that will reinforce and double down, especially on inequality and Wall Street, that we're starting to feel a little bit on the sidelines in the last four years. But he will keep America together. If Trump wins, we're likely going to see more volatility and chaos but also more growth and aggressive action. 
the result of which may be unprecedented growth in the United States and one of two things globally, more peace or more war. Trump truly is the Trump card. You really don't know what you're going to get. You know, when I was in college, I really looked to the media as something fascinating. I thought they were the checks on power, right? And they're the fourth estate, the quatrième pouvoir, outside of the legislative, executive, and judiciary in the United States. They are the ones providing scrutiny. You go back to the stories of Deep Throat and... Watergate and Bob Woodward and you're inspired. But you know, ever since the Iraq war, I, I really lost faith in a lot of the media. I realized that they simply are around to parrot what the establishment is telling them. And in the Iraq war, they needed the access. And so they really became agents of those in power. And more and more over the last two decades, as media became more consolidated, at least in terms of mainstream media, and you lost local and community news, uh, either in TV or uh, newspapers, you had a concentration of old journalists in Brooklyn or in Washington, D.C. And everybody hangs out. And I know this because <laughs> a lot of them are my friends. And some of them are actually the most influential of journalists. You could say they have hundreds of thousands of followers. They, they have books that sell hundreds of thousands of copies. They're blue checked or white checked in a blue circle, whatever you want to say. But they all hang out. It's a social circle. And the people who are on the other side of the power, the access points, particularly in the Obama administration, we're actually in the same social circle. We all went to the same colleges. We had the same upbringings. And uh, you cycle through a lot of the same jobs. Um, and so, you know, you'll even see in Facebook, you'll have somebody who's the director of communications be somebody who was, you know, leading public affairs in the Obama administration. And they talk to their classmate who was at the New York Times and a story comes out. So you get this real kind of familiarity amongst the elites in the media and i think it started to prevent scrutiny uh and over the last you know four to five years uh, we've seen also that group of people really animated against uh this president uh, president trump and in 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 many ways uh, inculcate that hostility into the media and the global media, not just the U.S. media, at the expense of truly objective coverage of issues. And that doesn't mean that the media is necessarily anti-Trump or pro-Trump uh, or that it should be one way or the other. But it takes an oxygen out of, of true coverage. And I think that's what's happen what happened with coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's hard to distill that now, uh, but it's... It's happened since January. And in January, the U.S. media, and then that inculcated, uh, you know, the, and co-opted the global media, 
was obsessed with these impeachment hearings in Ukraine or on Ukraine. And that was taking as much of the coverage, if not more, than the coronavirus. And that is when the coronavirus was unfolding. It was very clear. It was a very dominant story in China and East Asia, and it spread. And that was the weight. And then the weight of the, uh, of the media in February was the Democratic primary. And at no point when the Democrats were gathering, up till March 9th in Michigan, there was a big uh, rally by Biden. No mass. Everybody's hugging and kissing. Nobody in the media said anything. There was no questions by the media until the last debate, really, on coronavirus. So all the debates in early to mid-February, the media moderators did not even ask about coronavirus in the Democratic debates for the presidency of the United States. When Anthony Fauci came out and opposed masks, as did the Surgeon General, as late as, as early March, when other countries like South Korea and Taiwan the United Arab Emirates were promoting the wearing of masks. The media did not challenge this. It was really unfortunate because the media had a significant role to play. But it could only see in one lens. That is Trump or not Trump. My social circle or not my social circle. And it continued with the lockdowns. The lockdowns would never be a long-term sustainable solution. And the scrutiny around what that should be was abdicated for criticism of Donald Trump around opening up America. America always needed to open up, like every country in the world. But it was the nature of how you open up. What is the social protection? But they could not have an intelligent comparative conversation around that. And still today, all the media can do is cover the coronavirus pandemic through the lens of Trump. That even if you go to the BBC, in the last month, everything was about Trump and masks and super spreading it, this and that, amongst elites in Washington. And what happened in the UK? And what happened in France? In Europe? Where now you're seeing cases at unprecedented levels. To the extent that yesterday, you had over 280,000 cases in Europe, if you include Russia. 280,000, 2,500 plus deaths. There's no Trump there. Trump may be a terrible human being, maybe causing significant destruction around a myriad of issues, but he is not the only phenomenon in the world, and the media's role is to put forward scrutiny. One of the other things they've done in response to Trump is elevated the very officials from the Bush era who were spreading propaganda and lies and purveying, were the purveyors of surveillance on America and the world. The Clappers, the Michael Haydens, really the worst of the worst, have been resurrected as paid CNN contributors. I'm not sure what exactly has happened in the media. You see all of that happening, and then you see another phenomenon, and that is of the self-censorship. 
Now, I've lived in a number of dictatorships and autocracies and written publicly while living in them. I have faced both scrutiny from censors, scrutiny from intelligence agencies, and scrutiny, the scrutiny that I exercised the most was the self-censorship. So more often than not, I'm choosing what not to say rather than what to say. What to cover rather than what not to cover. What points to make rather than not to make. Self-censorship is always more pervasive than censorship. And it unfolds in two ways. It unfolds in how you feel power may come down on you with the power of the state. And so you are calibrating. And the second is the social influence. So how is your socialized environment going to come and pressurize you if you write something and so you react to that. In the social environment in the US, but I would argue global media because it's it's one big blob. Do not think that the global media is not interconnected, okay? It's very interconnected. And the 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 feelings and the sentiments amongst global western and international media is extremely interconnected and everybody kind of starts to know each other. And there you really have to toe a certain line and you really have to cover things in a certain way and you really cannot have dissent and to an extent where people are being, you could call it, canceled to a certain extent. And I think this is dangerous. Now people will say, well, this is on the side of affirming racial inclusion. This is on the side of making sure that we're actually covering things in a responsible way and not spreading disinformation and not being vehicles for hate uh, and violence and incitement to violence. And I get that. Uh, and, and I would be at the forefront uh, you know, of advocating for that, inclusive perspectives, etc. But when you are now towing the establishment line, the social establishment line, and you're getting into the business of creating a pressurized atmosphere where you are pushing people to neglect certain stories and views and people are getting fired and people are getting attacked and the media believes its, its, its role is not to actually scrutinize everything and not to actually forward many stories, you wonder who is going to play that role? Who is going to be the fourth estate? Who is going to be uh, the, the people who are the checks on power? rather than the blue checks for power, blue power or otherwise. And that's where uh, there needs to be a lot of thinking, because if Biden wins the election in the United States, then that is uh, the elite, right? That is the establishment. And you have to have a check on the establishment. That is the role the media needs to play. And what people forget, that Trump will come and go, but the forces of global inequality, the forces of global oppression, the tripartite forces that Martin Luther King Jr. used to speak to of poverty, militarism, and racial injustice are still in play. They were in play during Obama. They're in play during Trump. And Eric Garner was killed under, uh, during the Obama administration. George Floyd is killed under Trump. Uh, you have Guantanamo was opened in, under Bush, and guess what? It did not close under Obama. And you had the greatest bailout of Wall Street happen under Obama. 
And the biggest contributors to the Joe Biden campaign are Wall Street. And Gary Cohen also worked under the Trump administration, did the tax cut, right? The ex-Goldman guy. So, you know, this is a bipartisan establishment that needs to have checks on its power, needs to have scrutiny. And hiding behind racial inclusion or anti-Trumpism is... is, is really uh, a recipe for disaster and in where the world is going. And that's what I'm going to transition to now. It's a problem. We've never been in an era where the world is being governed by such a dominant elite uh, as it is today. What's happened over the last uh, 25 years is that the elite has developed an ability to truly globally consolidate and integrate uh, from all sorts of vantage points, um, but particularly economically and from a business uh, side, but then also from power. And the types of things that you see today is that uh, global politicians uh, are interlinked uh, in ways that seem almost uh, insane, right? And we saw that with the links between, uh, you know, uh, Saad Hariri and the Hariri family and Jacques Chirac. We've seen that between Sarkozy uh, and Libya. Uh, we've seen that between uh, members of the UK royal family uh, and the Gulf. Uh, we've seen that between uh, American interests uh, and the Bush family in Saudi Arabia. And the list can go on, right? I mean, we if you take an example of Stephen Bannon, right? Stephen Bannon had his films. Stephen Bannon worked at Goldman Sachs, then was a film producer and had his films bankrolled by Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, so this is a globally connected elite in ways that you cannot imagine. And that is when the Mueller investigation comes out and is finding all these links between Ukraine and D.C. And, and this is like, you're like, this is the way it is, right? I mean, you know, this is, is you have Saudi Arabia's uh, sovereign wealth fund investing into Uber, right? And you, you, you if you had ever been to this uh, function, the Davos in the desert in 2017, and you see Tom Barak and Schwartzman and... Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and, uh, uh, the you know, Travis from Uber and everybody's just wandering around talking to each other. And uh, that's the way it is. Right. And, and, and that whole Davosification of the world's elite, it's no longer just in Davos. Right. It's something that takes place from everywhere, from Milken to Davos to Alan Obery. Uh, into places that you just don't even know about. And what's interesting is that the veneer on a lot of these elite gathering and conversations is actually social. So they're there to solve the social challenges, okay? So <laughs> it's like going to the criminal and saying, can you give me justice? But that's what's happened in the world, is that the people who are guaranteeing this economic system of inequality uh, are the very people who are convening or being convened to solve the challenges. And so you will see an elite concentric circle around this core elite of people who are representing media or people who are representing the, the leading nonprofits in the world, all, you know, confabbing, right? I mean, so if you're ever on 
a conversation with the head of a UN agency and a billionaire, they're not asking them about inequality. They're asking them for money, right? And so that is the way the elite and its concentric circles are, are, are basically placed together in the world. And it's only getting more prevalent and predominant and uh, visible uh, in, in one sense because it's getting the elite are getting more powerful and more wealthier and more people know, but they don't know how, how, what to do with it, right? So you have 2,000 billionaires who have uh, more wealth than 4.5 billion people in the world. That's 2,000 and 4.5 billion right? I mean, that is one person, right? Uh, for every four and a half million people. Imagine being in a city and this one person is more wealth than the whole rest of the city, right? And that's the world that we live in, basically. The whole world is structured that way. And those very people in the first quarter of the corona crisis gained 30% uh, more wealth uh, it was about 27 odd so percent, according to UBS, during the pandemic. So during the height of the pandemic, their wealth is going up. Okay, so the world is still governed by this nexus of power and money that's extremely integrated. And it, that power and money is surrounded by the very concentric circles of the elites that all go to the same schools, the Harvards, the Oxfords that are in the same circles, that want to get into the same memberships of the Young Global Leaders of the World Economic Forum, and then they're, they're leading some NGO or some social enterprise or some media institution, and they're all trying to either get into those smaller circles, so to become on the cover of Forbes and be the next billionaire, or they want to get money from them, right, for their venture, for the institution, and so it they become really extensions of those 2,000 people, right? So those 2,000 people then have these concentric circles around them. And it's actually quite blatant, right? Because if you think about it, Jeff Bezos is the the owner of the Washington Post and uh, is there with, uh, you know, claiming to fight democracy for democracy in the darkness, uh, while Amazon has one of the most pervasive monopolies in the history of uh, humanity. Uh, and uh, at a time of tremendous income inequality. So, you know, what happens in such a world? Uh, in such a world, we have to make sure that there is uh, the right scrutiny. And this is where politics does a disservice, right? And the media itself does a disservice because the media, especially the large institutions, are governed by in the concentric circles with uh, these same very uh, elites, in some degrees, owned by them. Politics, especially after the Citizens United decision in the United States, uh, without have unlimited campaign finance. So, so they're very much tied up there. So you have to wonder how do you militate against this elite? And the elite have realized one thing, and it's it, it's very hard to accept because. When Martin Luther King Jr. is talking about militarism, uh, injust racial injustice, and poverty as these triple threat forces that have integrated, you envision that an elite is in lockstep trying to fight this. But what they found is that they can keep two of these. 
and fight one. And the one that they can fight, and it's happened not just in the United States, but in other societies, is uh, the, the one they can accept, sorry, is racial injustice, ending racial injustice as they see it. And in fact, what they see is not ending necessarily racial injustice, but it really colorizing the elite, right? And so if I colorize the elite, and it's, you know, can call representation, which is, by the way, a good, it is, it is good to have representation. But I doubt many Democrats would say, I can't wait for Sarah Palin to be the president of the United States. Because representation is not enough, right? And in fact, representation can be used to undermine the very thing that you're trying to fight for. So putting Thurgood Marshall in the Supreme Court is very different than putting Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court. They both may have good upsides in terms of representation, but they're not necessarily solving the same issues. And so the colorization of the elite, which was done in South Africa after apartheid, is used to actually prevent larger change, right, on the inequities that exist. And in this case, poverty and militarism, right? So you look at, you can colorize the Washington Post, but Jeff Bezos is still chasing through Amazon contracts with the Department of Defense. And they all have, you know, Google, uh, Facebook, right? They're all working with the Department of Defense. And I mean, this if you really saw what uh, each of them are doing, and, and especially, uh, you know, Google, uh, it's remarkable how much of the tie-up there is with the uh, military sector in the United States and the intelligence sector. Uh, and ultimately, they're not, and, and you might say, oh, but military, well, who do you think is providing the equipment to police forces that are militarizing the police? It's a consequence of the militarization of the United States. Uh, so these are things that all get linked up, and, and nobody wants anybody to link them up because they would rather distract you with putting a homepage of uh, Harriet Tubman on Google when you go for a search uh, rather than understanding what are the wage levels uh, in Amazon that keep people uh, at levels where they really don't have financial autonomy. They, they'd rather talk about Harriet Tubman, who, by the way, is fantastic to talk about, but that is not enough. And one of the, the largest aspects of this is the suppression of discourse around poor whites uh, in uh, the United States. And what we're seeing is a transition uh, where you have the reemergence of white poverty as a dominant factor in the United States and where, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. would look to bring a coalition of white and black uh, poor people together to militate for change. And that is really a true threat, that cross-racial group uh, for for change um, to to elite power structures. And, you know, we, we look at from 2000 to 2017, uh, drug overdoses in America climbed from 17,000 to 70,000, right? I mean, it, it led, in fact, the rise in uh, drug overdoses and suicides led to a decline in the life expectancy in the United States uh, because of that situation. A lot of it was driven by poverty. And uh, 80%, uh, 78%, uh, to be exact, of the people dying from uh, opioid uh, overdoses were white. And 
you know, it's an a aspect of, you know, definitely the American elites when they looked at the situation in the 1980s and 1990s in black uh, uh, neighborhoods, they launched a war on drugs and incarceration with Joe Biden uh, supported the crime bill, as did other Democrats and Republicans, um, that essentially criminalized uh, this very thing. But the reaction today should not be the same. We, we should not be criminalizing the poor simply because they're white. Uh, and the empathy that we need to show has to be the same. And today, where you have a growing number of poor whites uh, and you have the colorization of the elite uh, and you have movements of white privilege, the complexity of this means that you could end up discounting the victimhood and the inequities that exist in society for the pageantry of change rather than the substance uh, of it. And, you know, that is something that is going to be a critical issue over the next uh, several years. And the scrutiny of the elites um, across the board is going to be the defining factor of how societies transform over the next decade. Black Lives Matter. Race Matters. It's a great book by Cornell West, who's a professor of mine. But I'm sure he'd be the first one to tell you race matters, but it is not all that matters. We are in a complex world with many complex forces. But assuredly, race has been a defining feature of progress or lack thereof in how societies have been organized, not just in the recent past, but for the last several centuries in the United States, in Europe, in India, around the world, and not just through the development, evolution, and growth of America, but in the way the entire colonialist imperialist structure of how the world has been organized over the last 300 years. Whiteness was effectively on the pedestal. So sure, there has been a pervasive effect of that on black and brown communities around the world and on black and brown empowerment in the world. And it continues in the United States, in Europe, and even within the countries of Africa, of South America, and of South Asia. I remember I spent some time with the Sidi community in India. They came from Africa, from East and the Horn of Africa in the 1600s, brought by the Nawabs. Until this day, hundreds of years later, their societies, the communities in which they live, are still stratified and they're still isolated. They are black Africans with African features who speak Gujarati and wear saris. But they are not fully integrated because they are black. In Saudi Arabia, slavery was really not abolished until the 1970s. 
And that's even if you go back to the founding of Islam and Prophet Muhammad asked Bilal, a freed slave, a black individual, to go up uh, uh, on the mosque and give the idan, the call to prayer, the first call to prayer in the history of Islam. And it was a symbol of empowerment, of racial emancipation. And yet 1400 years later, you still had slavery in the Arabian Peninsula, often of black individuals. You can get through an obfuscation of that history, but that's what it is. And it shows that race is something that not just the United States deals with, that the rest of the world deals with. And it's not something that will go away easily. And discounting Black Lives Matter simply because uh, there was a civil rights legislation in the 1960s uh, or you don't see color, it's, that's an obfuscation. That's obscurant. I can never pronounce that name, uh, that word. Uh, so I will actually have to you know, maybe use a use a different word, but uh, let me try again. Obscurantism, right? Uh, so it's one of my my favorite words. But uh, this is basically the practice of deliberately showing information in a way that is misleading or imprecise uh, to limit understanding. And so you have systems of racial injustice, systemic aspects of racism that will always have reverberating effects. But race matters, but it's not all that matters. And I think what has happened with Diversity Inc., which is being pushed by the same forces that try to project colorization of the elite uh, to as a form of obscurantism. Uh, and colorization of the elite is good at a level, but it is not enough and it's not solving the underlying issues. Uh, but it can be used to actually discount uh, uh, what is actually happening. And actually, it's a very imprecise tool if you simply focus on one race, uh, for example, right? So in Canada, when we have Black Lives Matter come into the discourse, well, we have to talk about First Nations Lives Matter, First Nations being Native Americans uh, in the context of Canada, because they are really the ones who faced a real pervasive nature of discrimination since the founding of of Canada. And it, it, it should not be at the expense of one group, but it shows that it's not an either-or or only, that there needs to be an inclusive discussion around race. Uh, and ultimately, there are aspects that are driving inequality and injustice that are not race. And so... It would be a terrible shame if progress in the world is done in an exclusionary way, the discussion of progress, that is, is race-dominant. Because that will cause us to miss a lot of issues. And one of the things that's very interesting as you go into uh, the issues of uh, gaps of wealth uh, uh, in the United States, right? So there is some fascinating work done. Some of it's been covered in the New York Times, uh, but there's a number of studies that are uh, looked at this where you look at the income gaps that persist intergenerationally uh, between racial groups. What you find is that if a black man is born poor or rich, no matter what, they will be poor, uh, less well off than their equivalent generational counterparts. So if you were a a black 
boy and a white boy born in the same strata, the white boy will end up being wealthier. So if you have a poor white boy from Appalachia, he will grow up wealthier than the poor black boy in Appalachia. So when we talk about white poverty, that's very interesting, right? Because then there is definitely going to be a driver around systemic factors that are being missed. But actually, when you see the same statistic around black women and white women, guess what you find? There is not an income gap if they are born in the same social strata. There's a big gap if you're a white man and a black man. Whether you're born rich or born poor, the white man will end up richer or more well off than the black man in the same strata. But not true for a black woman and a white woman. What's, what's driving that? So you have to go deeper because if you don't create then a gender-sensitive approach to this, you might miss the problem. And the problem that seems to be the case is incarceration. So the key issue is incarceration. And one of the key drivers of incarceration for young black men is marijuana. And if you have somebody dry, putting forward a law around marijuana, they might get discounted. But that could be the single biggest game changer around racial justice in the United States. And I say that as an aside because it's very important when we come to issues of social policy to really go to the heart of the issue. And so race is important, but the way in which race is discussed, how it is considered, needs to be taken into account. So a lot of how we're solving problems is kind of like we're looking at the last 30 years. Okay, and this is probably the most important part of this podcast today. We are living in an era defined by 1990 to 2020. From the Pax Americana that ended the Cold War through 9-11 and the Obama administration. And how you experience those eras and where you were in them and how you grew up and how you understand them are affecting how you're seeing the moment today. But then more importantly, if you don't understand the very particularities of these 30 years, we're going to miss out what's going to drive positive change over the next 30 years. Because the world we're heading into is not the world that we've been a part of. And that world we were a part of was an anomaly. And it was not just an anomaly. It is a series of anomalies. The Cold War was the defining feature of the post-World War II era. And we have 45 years of this situation that defined peace and security in the world. And affected the domestic situations, the economic development of many countries. 
And then one side loses. The USSR. Predominant part of the USSR, Russia. And you have the moment of Pax Americana and everybody talks about the rise of liberal democracies. My friend Tom Friedman would say, no two countries that have a McDonald's have fought, gone to war. I think uh, I, I have a lot of examples for him now, but uh, <laughs> we'll discuss that off, offline. Francis Fukuyama declared the end of history. What happened? Well, it wasn't the end of history, but there was a 10-year period in which America was ascendant. And here came, you know, saxophone playing, Bill Clinton takes the presidency, leads Pax Americana. The world is at the fingertips of the American people, and they can shape the world in their image. Solve a conflict, bring democracy. It's all on. Or is it? So you have two groups of people who are really looking to drive the Americana of this moment. But Americans themselves never got into this elite game. They just wanted to do well. So you get NAFTA signed. The WTO gets kind of supercharged. And what do you have in the United States? You have protests against APEC. You have, uh, you know, the, the protests against all the free trade agreements. Very interesting. So the elite in America are like, we are creating this international system, the rules-based order, and it's going to guarantee prosperity for everybody, including our own population, and we're going to shape these institutions, and no one's going to contest it, right? And at the time, Amer uh, Russia is a kleptocracy, in which the United States actually subverted and uh, the Russian election that brought Boris Yeltsin uh, back to power. He was going to lose. There's a lot of literature on, on that online. Um, and they actually sent political consultants to help him uh, kind of turn that around. Um, so the United States essentially uh, governing Russia. And China was really being uh, midwife by the United States into the global economy and through the WTO. And uh, in, in the United States, uh, you had uh, Bill Clinton working with the Republican uh, House to actually uh, repeal aspects of the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 that had separated banking. And that laid the groundwork for the 2008 financial crisis. So you had the 1990s, supercharging of the elite, but you had a people who were really hesitant, right? They were either protesting or opposing. And so it restrained certain aspects of American foreign policy. You saw that notably in you know, one of the interventions that George Herbert Walker Bush undertook was in Somalia. And you know, you know the movie Black Hawk Down for some of you. Uh, and it led to a lot, lot of outrage. So when the Bosnian war was breaking out, there was a genocide and the Srebrenica massacre, the United States really intervened late. And that was around the same time of the 1994 Rwandan genocide. 
in which the world really didn't intervene. And Susan Rice, who became the NSA for Obama, was in a meeting with Anthony Lake, who ended up becoming the head of UNICEF. And they, uh, Anthony Lake was the NSA at the time. And Susan Rice asked, well, how will this play in the elections, right? The midterm elections that subsequently the United, uh, Bill Clinton lost uh, the control of the House when Newt Gingrich you know, rode to power. Uh, asked how would intervening in the Rwanda genocide at the time, the most prolific genocide since the Holocaust. I mean, you're talking about 8,000 people dying a day, uh, like butchered, right? A hundred days in a row, like with machetes. And it was, it was crazy. And so that's Susan Rice, right? Susan Rice, who was at the front of, uh, who's at the front of a lot of criticism of, of Trump today and uh, about why the United States should intervene abroad. Um, was there. And you can go see who Susan Rice went to go work for in the mid to late 90s um, after that uh, when she was in the private sector. But ultimately, uh, this is what was going on in the United States. And so Bill Clinton still didn't you know, pull into that. And one of the books that was written in response to that was by Samantha Power. Uh, and she wrote uh, you know, this book on the age of uh, genocide. Uh, and uh, in that book, uh, uh, she really makes the case for humanitarian intervention. And so does a somebody named Michael Ignatieff, who's at the Kennedy School, who's um, uh, at Harvard, and is Canadian, actually. So he was part of this whole movement around humanitarian intervention. And, and uh, it crystallizes something called Responsibility to Protect, or R2P, which becomes the governing framework from the left for uh, humanitarian intervention, and but unactivated, right? Not not put into practice. So at the same time, there's a group in D.C. called the Project for a New American Century, which are really a lot of holdovers from the Cold War. People who have served in you know DODs of of the 1980s, uh, and they're left out in this this Pax America. Like where did there's no Cold War? We're not fighting it. Who's the enemy? Right, and they start to determine that the enemy are people who oppose democracy and particularly those who are in the Middle East who oppose democracy. And they talk about actually the next century is an American century. So building on Pax America, and they basically recreate the world in America's image and you have a more peaceful world. And so that is about, you could call it democracy interventionism. So from the right, and they publish a big paper, and of course, their first case study would be Iraq. So, the republic in the Republican primary, uh, the person who gets elected is George Walker Bush, and George Walker Bush is actually supported by a lot of Muslim Americans because he takes two positions. One of them is uh, that he opposes secret evidence used against at that time. Uh, certain terrorist suspects, I believe it's Al Aryan in Florida. And the second is he opposed nation building, right? So nation building with regards to like, you know, what Clinton was starting to do in Bosnia. He's like, look, America does not, you know, we're not in the Cold War. We need to retrench, etc. right? And so that's the prevailing mood into the Bush presidency. Now, if you think about the Bush presidency, it sounds crazy that that's what his views is, definitely after the Patriot Act and then the Iraq War. But that's what it was. But 9-11 opens the door, right? 9-11 opens the door to both these forces from the left and the right to put into place this idea of interventionism around the world 
and where America is really this leading force shaping the world in its image. There's a rules-based order. We enforce the rules and so forth. But what happens? So you have the Iraq War, and it's a disaster. You have the Patriot Act, which shows the resurgence of American surveillance. Disaster. Uh, Edward Snowden unveils that, right? You have Afghanistan. Disaster. Putin realized that Russia is his own country, no longer uh, under American control. Bush invites him, calls him his buddy, you know, rolls him around in his golf cart. Uh, Hillary Clinton eventually does the Great Reset button, which was actually mistranslated with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister. Uh, you know, Obama builds this great relationship with Medvedev. Uh, just it didn't it didn't work, right? And so Russia, and then China is rising all that time. So you get to like 2008-9 and this whole nation building agenda, this kind of international order where the U.S. can go around telling everybody what to do is over. And it gives rise to Bush, uh, to Obama, sorry. And Obama says, by the way, I'm going to talk to everybody. We're going to have to make friends. Uh, You know, we can't operate as if this is a Pax Americana world, and we're not going to do nation building. So all these people who had their one shot after the Cold War get put back into kind of their place. So what? So that's the, the geopolitical story. So the geopolitical story is now in 2020, uh, these people have come back up, right? They're the Lincoln Project folks. Uh, there's some of the folks that have, you know, being believe in this rules-based order in in a world that's now governed by just hard geopolitics, right? Whether we like it or not, uh, China, Russia, you can't dictate to them what to do. The United States does not have that same power. Now, that might mean you build the right alliances and, and all that, you know, type of thing. So they're now, they have a resurgence, right? So you're going to have to watch for them if Biden wins in, 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 you know, what are they trying to shape? And we'll talk about then what are the next 30 years going, but these people are now reprimed, okay? The second thing is the economic story, right? So you have an economic story, an elite economic story, where until 2008, you know, it, there was this new generation that comes in, you know, is growing up through that era. And 2008 is like a collapse. And from 1990 to 2008, the most of America did not experience growth in their wages. And in 2008, they saw a decline in their household wealth. So most of the United States and most of poor white America experience really a decline. Uh, in what is the Pax American era. But in the elite circles of the United States, and especially if you look at people who are graduating from college, so about 22 years old in 2008, and uh, so today they're going to be um, you know, either 34 years of age or younger, okay? Uh, and maybe you could say 32, 33, they did not experience, from a foreign policy perspective, all the failures of 2000 and 2008, the surveillance, the FBI coming to college campuses, Edward Snowden revealing what he revealed, etc. 
And they did not, ex they experienced essentially economic growth from 2009 to 2018. All they know is growth. And they seem to all be doing well, right? So if you're coming out of whether it's George Washington University or Princeton University or UCLA, this kind of college elite, they're doing really well. So they're like, this is a great situation and I'm doing well and I got to help, you know, my diverse uh, friends out because they're suppressed. But generally they're like, I'm white and I do well. And they're not looking at what's happened over the last 20 years in which this rules-based order and NAFTA and WTO, actually the majority of poor white people have gotten poorer or just stayed the same and goods, cost of goods haven't gone up, right? So the how you see the last 30 years and how these forces are playing are coming into how you see the moment today, right? So if you see the moment today as I've had a lot of prosperity and kind of this pandemic is the first thing undermining the prosperity, uh, that, you know, the world and rules-based order, so that like old establishment that's coming in and talking about kind of this 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 era, you're not really aware of all that happened during the Iraq war. You're like, oh, maybe that is true. So you're looking at now 2020 through these lens, okay? But here's the rub. Most of that doesn't even matter. Because what we're talking about is learning the lessons of the last 30 years and the experiences. That might get you to understand why certain people are thinking the way they think. But guess what? It's not the way the world is going to be. And, and the way the world is headed is, I mean, we're headed into crazy town. Okay? And I hate to say this because you don't want to be hyperbolic. But what we've experienced the last five, seven years is nothing. Now, there may be a period over the next five to seven years, and as the corona pandemic subsides, we may see, like we did in the Roaring Twenties, the greatest growth in modern economic history. The world is, economy has been surprised. And we saw this, what happened in quarter three in the United States. Uh, you saw 33% GDP growth, which is crazy is coming from the low base and it's quite remarkable because it shows that a lot of the american economy has already bounced back but there's still a lot of restriction constriction a lot of that was driven by pumping stimulus money and 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 that will subside but you're going to have consumer spending go up you're going to have things like travel go up you're going to have trade go up and you're going to have this go up all around the world so you're probably going to have a dividend for five seven years that's going to be unprecedented and it's going to be a race for those gains. And what you might find is that, that those 2,000 billionaires are going to capture all those gains, which is dangerous because of what I'm going to tell you next. The world is headed into something that hasn't happened in centuries. We are headed into underpopulation. That's right, underpopulation. So what we hear about a lot is climate change, okay? Climate change is real. How you solve it? What's the best way? How fast is going to go? Uh, you know, who are the countries that ultimately are responsible for the solution? We can debate that in another podcast. But climate change, climate change is there, and what we often think about is climate change and then growing population and resources of the world. So, a new Lancet study, if, if this year, 
uh, that came out in July. It's called World Population Likely to Shrink After Mid-Century Forecasting Major Shifts in Global Population Economic Power. It is estimated that the world population will now peak in 2074, under 10 billion, and then decline to 8.8 billion. Now you might think, what's the big deal? Don't we need a decline? It's, <laughs> we have so many resources here, I've, and climate change. The world population grew in the last 100 years, from 1920 to 2020, from 2 billion, eight billion it quadrupled four times all the growth that you see economically when they take put your money in the stock market it'll go up seven percent every year like clockwork that's how it happens it's the best thing you can do that's all predicated on a world in which the population is perpetually increasing there are literally more consumers every year spending more money now we're going to see a lot of dynamics so you're going to see for example uh economies become more efficient and so you're going to have productivity gains on the economy. You're going to uh, end up seeing that people have ways to generate resources for the population without them having to work, and et cetera, and so forth. And so you might have certain economic gains that, that continue. But at some point, you're talking about a declining population. I don't know if you've seen the movie Children of Men, but if you haven't, go this weekend, watch that movie. Because... Some of the world is going to be like that. And in a world like that, you're going to have, in a world that's previously built on the scarcity of resources, you are not going to have enough resources. But you're not going to necessarily have enough economic gains. And you're not going to have expectations of growth. And in a world where there aren't expectations of growth, you have decline in society, you have aging populations, and you have lack of vitality, and you have a lack of innovation. And that's going to affect the true nature of economic gains. And so if you do not solve the equity issue now, it's going to only become a race in the future. Now, that's what's going to be happening in a lot of countries and around the world. Okay, So this un underpopulation. Then we have the geopolitics of it. The United States is crested. It might be that Trump has and Biden continues the supercharging of the American economy in this framework. But geopolitically, the world is more competitive. And there is no rules-based order. It, maybe there could have been, but there really has never been a rules-based order. It's determined by power. And now you have a more weighted dynamic of power, and it will contest each other. So while we're having this rise over the next five to seven years, you're going to have flashpoints. And it's very unclear, and you've seen various conflicts around the world, how flashpoints are solved. To be perfectly honest, what Obama started and Trump has continued of outreach to your enemies is the likely best possible way of forestalling true geopolitical stalemates in the world. People are mocking Trump, but he's really continued the foreign policy 
of Obama when it comes to reaching out to your enemies. His outreach, now he does it in his way of God knows what and writing love letters to Kim Jong-un. But the outreach to Kim Jong-un was raised by Obama himself and mocked by Republicans in 2008. The third factor, which I've already talked about, is inequality. And the inequality is unsustainable. And the elites are unsustainable. And the consolidation of power and wealth is unsustainable. And the concentric circles around the elites are unsustainable. And there will be a revenge and a revolution against the elites. And it will take two forms. One of two forms. Left populism or right populism. Or true destructive implosion in societies. And so that's where people need to calibrate. Can you have a modulated left populism that dismantles some of these elites? Or you'll have a right populism that looks to dismantle these elites, but perhaps bring other things in its place. So the next 30 years, there's a lot of other things to talk about, and I can talk about in the next another podcast. What moment we are in today needs to reflect on how people are seeing this moment based on the last 30 years but then what's coming up in the next 30 years it is not going to be the same and people need to keep their eyes open around china around the changing nature of the global economy and around inequality uh, and elites One of the things that Obama was mocked for, and still is today, by both the left and right, was his rhetoric around hope and change. Seems in today's political climate, hope and change are good things. They're not tangible things. You can't hold them. They don't seem actionable. But there is something inherently good about that. Hope and change. Societies that don't have hope don't change. You have to have hope, aspiration, belief that things can be better. Otherwise, what are you building? What are you living for? And change as a construct is the way to hope. Change in our lives individually and in our societies. But when hope and change are simply empty provinces without structures underpinning them, without the right foundations, can yes indeed become a disappointment. I don't think that has to be the end of it. One of the reasons people are probably voting for Trump is because they see hope and change. They saw hope and they saw change in the way that they saw it. And maybe that's what people see in Biden. But there is hope with everything that we've talked about 
the media, elite, race, the last 30 years, the next 30 years, the perilous state of today's politics, there definitely is hope. But hope and change do not happen without action, do not happen without thoughtful deliberation. One of the themes that I like to emphasize is that of militants and peacemakers. People are always looking for the peacemakers, and blessed are the peacemakers. But the peacemakers need to make peace. And without militants, the specter of them, in the background or the foreground, waiting in the wings, the peacemakers have very limited power. When you look at Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. on their own, it's hard to analyze their success. But when you look at black militancy and black reconciliation, they go hand in hand. Malcolm X was not about the use of force, was not about the use of any means necessary, but that at some point, any means were necessary. Martin Luther King Jr. understood that. And when he went to talk to Lyndon B. Johnson in 1964, or when he posthumously initiated the 1968 civil rights legislation, it was the fear that militancy and an even more aggressive form of militancy would be the transcendent force for change. Mandela always had the ANC and the military wings of the black liberation movement in South Africa to point to. Gandhi had bows. Militants and peacemakers aren't opposites, but complementary factors in the push for change. Militancy can mean different things, and so it does not mean violence. But this is a point that should not be underestimated. 1964 and 1968, which ushered in seminal legislation in the United States around civil rights, were remarkable because they were election years. Legislation happening prior to elections. Haven't you heard this year to go out and vote for change? That it's your vote that makes the change? Isn't that what you were told? That it's your vote that makes the change. And then when you vote the people in, They pass the legislation. What happens in America in the first two years of Clinton? In the first two years of Obama? In the first two years of Trump? Do they pass their policies or do they get stuck in all types of intra-party deliberations? The ability to reach consensus across divides actually creates a more sustainable base for change. The time for change on racial injustice in America was actually this year, in an election year, 
with President Trump, with the House and the Senate coming together, like in 1964 and 1968. You don't get everything you want, but you get something that sustains. It's a lesson that's very hard to see because you often think when you vote your people into power, they'll make the change. Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, countless others under the Obama administration, under an Obama Justice Department, and justice denied. There's a lot of factors. We can talk about states and local communities, etc. But it is not just about voting. One of the other things that's been very hard and change and hope is the absolutism of progressive positions today. We are not giving the space for people to change, for attitudes to change, to evolve. One of the great stories over the last 25 years is that of gay rights in the West, which have become prolifically more accepted amongst both left and right circles. Gay marriage was considered a political football by President Obama and Vice President Joe Biden when they were running, to the extent that they rejected gay marriage in 2008 when they were running for office. This is after Canada already had gay marriage, so it wasn't an alien concept. And now in 12 years, everybody supports gay marriage across the political spectrum. Why? Because people were not demonized. They were not rejected. There was dialogue. There was outreach. There was the building of empathy. There was the ability to see the other and see the other as non-threatening in all directions that allowed for a change of mindsets. Today, we're not allowing for that change of mindsets. We have an absolutism where everybody lives in glass houses and throws stones. It won't work, and it will undermine the very movements. It will make the Harvey Weinsteins, once again, emblems of change on the very issues that they're seeking to prevent change on. I think there's hope. I think there's hope in our world. I think you'd agree with me. But it will require more than what we have today. Uh, one of the things that I lament is that there's a lack of civil society and a lack of community and a lack of faith. These are things that have been extremely pivotal in the growth and progress of societies. And while people cannot believe in God today, that's perfectly okay and we might not have that same sense of faith. People need to have faith. In some way, shape, or form, it's a human need. And what we're seeing with the hollowing out of true independence of society and the hollowing out of faith and local communities, as everyone is dispersed, is that politics and political tribalism is taking its place that people are clinging religiously to precepts of fleeting political interests. People are building parties as supplanting civil society when these are just houses of special interests. We no longer have communities. 
with social media following. They're not dependable. They're not resilient. They're not what will sustain change, will sustain hope. And so if there is a challenge for the West in particular to really build in a changing world, it is to go back and understand what is community and faith. It's hard because maybe that faith is not religious. Maybe it's not about God. But it's going to be needed. And it's going to, be need, to, it's going to need to be something that's not about Biden or Trump.